Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Futurati podcast with Gary Wolf discussing the quantified self movement. If you enjoyed it, remember to leave us a like on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts, and we will see you next time. Gary, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems you're working on now? Well, by vocation, I'm a journalist, and I worked for many years writing about the cultural effects of new technologies. Through many hype cycles and also really interesting developments that survived and affected our lives a lot, um, despite the hype that was around them. And I have been a contributing editor for Wired for many years, but in 2007, a friend and my editor at Wired and named Kevin Kelly and I were just talking about what we thought would be interesting to work on for maybe the next 15 years. Right. And we did something that's pretty common among editors and journalists. We wrote a bunch of things down and things that were going on and kind of circled them and said, all right, what's, what's the headline? And at that time, it's kind of interesting, 2008, Facebook's not yet a public company, but they're, they're offering marketers this deep look into people's personal lives. And, and Google had, had started to do advertising that was based on people's search history. And you could kind of see, I think, the new version of the iPhone at that time, or I think the iPhone was only, I don't know, a year or two old, but um, it had a geolocation um, service, you know, based on a GPS transceiver inside it. And so we could see that personal computing was kind of coming all the way in. And instead of asking, all right, what's its importance for marketing and maybe for kind of political micro-targeting, I had covered the campaign of the Vermont ex-Vermont Governor Howard Dean a few years earlier, he had, he had had this crazy theory that political micro-targeting and small money donations on the internet would upend the American political system. Right. Which was... How prescient, yeah. Yes, came true with a vengeance, but not, not, not um, to his benefit. Um, but anyway, rather than looking at those kind of huge-scale impacts, we thought about, well, what about the very intimate impacts, the really personal impacts? And as we were talking about it, I kind of Put a circle around it and said, well, it's it's quantified self. It's the self in its most personal concerns, and it's kind of computing and everything numerical um, coming together. And, and that's really what got me started um, with what I've been doing for the last 12 years. So it sounds like there was a, a bit of a watershed moment around 2008, or maybe not a watershed moment, but it's sort of a sea change where people's relationship to technology began um, to, to shift as a result of the rise of Facebook and Google and, and similar 
companies like that. Is it primarily a function of the technology that, that was coming on the scene or were people's basic attitudes towards privacy beginning to change as well? It's a good question. You know, I guess I've learned over time not to make a super hard distinction between technology factors and social factors. They're all mixed up somewhere, you know, just beneath the surface. Um, but I do think that it's undeniable that it's, it's sort of the internet and internet-y kind of things, because right. even beneath the level of the sensing technology, you have this, this sort of extension of our communicative and thinking and sensing capacities that's going on. And eventually that's going to touch on our self-concept and our self-interests. Let's, let's stay with that a little bit. Uh, how sympathetic are you to the David Chalmers thesis of the extended mind? Are, are you familiar with this? Yes. And, and I think that's, that's legitimate and accurate, really. So, so how would you, uh, for somebody who doesn't know the concept, how would you define quantified self? Well, quantified self is, that definition has changed over time. So I'll give you what I think, how I think of it today. And if we want, we can kind of go back in time. But quantified self today really is a label, is a name for a community of people, thousands and thousands of people around the world who are using all of our tools of computation to think about their own personal questions, to explore their own personal topics and problems. And there's a knowledge sharing kind of process that goes on inside the quantified self community. There's a sharing of tools and techniques. Its origin is as kind of a user's group of people interested in self-knowledge through numbers. And that grew into really a very lively and very organic kind of um, uh, movement, but not in the sense of a political movement, more in the sense of like a, a cultural movement, a literary movement, a genre of self-expression and self-exploration that I'm lucky to be part of. Can we talk a little bit about the history of the quantified self movement? So you said around 2008, people were beginning to think about their own data in different ways. And then you started working on this and, and, and trying to understand it more seriously. So what were the initial meetups like? What were the initial experiments that people were doing? And how has that changed as you have grown over time? Well, we started in the most simple fashion. So Kevin and I were really thinking about, okay, maybe this is, I mean, Kevin's a writer, but he's also an editor, a great editor, really. So he is thinking, okay, what can you work on? I'm thinking, what can we work on? But he's really thinking as an editor, what can you work on? And, you know, helping uh, frame these questions. And in a pretty simple way, we just decided, let's bring some people together who are doing kind of self-knowledge through numbers and that's source development and we'll learn something. And so we got, you know, 25 people or so together um, at Kevin's house in Pacifica. We put started a meetup. Look, if you are interested in self-tracking and, um, you know, a personal data, personal informatics, come and we'll talk about what you're doing and what where this thing is going. A very, very sort of in some ways unpromising idea, but we knew we would learn something. And we were together and somebody um, came in a little bit late. We were still just doing intros, or about to do intros. And Kevin said, you came in last, you go first. 
And instead of introducing himself in a standard way, he said, well, I'll show you what I've been doing in this last year. And he showed us this visualization, time series visualization of how he'd spent his time in his last year of graduate school in 15 minute increments. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, that's what, that's what we said. Wow, really interesting. And then other people started to share kind of who they were through sharing what they were learning about themselves. A uh, emeritus professor of experimental psychology at Cal was there named Seth Roberts. And he showed some very interesting, kind of very sensitive self-tracking experiments he'd done over a decade of measuring his cognitive uh, alacrity, kind of cognitive readiness and alertness yeah. using this simple math test of a hundred simple questions every morning. I think I and, read about that. There was a blog post on the Quantified Self website. Yeah. That, I think, yeah. So interesting and showing the effect of different foods, for instance, on his cognition. Right. What, wasn't it butter? Didn't butter help? That was one of his most right. kind of famous self-discoveries was that <laughs> increasing fats, it wasn't only butter, but, you know, butter was the big one, um, uh, seemed to improve his cognition I, the I, next day. I, I find that really interesting that at the initial Quantified Self meetup, you ask a guy to introduce himself. And instead of saying, here's my name and what I'm into, he just shows you this graph. Is that characteristic of people in the Quantified Self community? Do you, do you think there's any role for that in broader society? Like well, a, so, yes, yes. So I I wouldn't say that he didn't tell us his name because he did tell <laughs> us his name, which is Kaping Yi. And he's a, he's an artist uh, and a uh, computer scientist and, you know, so we knew his name, but I think you're right in that we, at that time, it was an extremely avant-garde way to express yourself. Right. These things required a lot of skills. So really people who were expert at doing quantitative things, usually from their work or their studies, had access to kind of thinking about themselves and communicating about themselves in a new way. But that's become easier and easier. Right. And so, yes, I do think people are increasingly able to and interested in communicating about themselves and, in a sense, with themselves using using numbers. So, so how would you quantify the quantified self movement today? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's it's a great question because we are well into it now, right? So we're over a decade in. Yeah. And I think um, when it first started, it was so such an odd topic. Um, and then within a couple of years, Fitbit had started. And I think actually they had already formed a company, but they just didn't have a product out yet at that time. So like a lot of things that catch hold culturally, there's more than one person thinking about them. Right. You know, so we were thinking about it and other people were thinking about it, but within a few years, it was a huge trend. And it just followed this hype cycle, you know, that we've all seen in other domains to the point where, I mean, our first meeting had 20 people. Our first conference had, I think, 200 people um, in 2011. And in 2015, there were 2,000 people in the San Francisco waterfront, you know, with all these companies and uh, VCs and, and, and sort of this white heat of, okay, you are the tech trend of the current moment. Having been through that a few times, right. you know, we knew where that was going, right? And so the quantified self movement was taken to be the kind of public face of the wearables industry at that time. Okay. But we always knew that that's not really what it was. 
And so then as that kind of became mainstream, the wearables industry and became, you know, now that's not at the center of tech hype, you know, whether you want to say it's cryptocurrency or AI or, you know, you take your pick. It's quantum computing. It's certainly not quantified self. But what happened with quantified self is there was a kind of um, a kind of maturation and a kind of concentration and in a way returning to a niche, which is the niche is people who don't have an off the shelf answer to their problem. Like if you have a question and you can get the answer to it by looking it up on the internet, then certainly you're going to do that. All right. Let me ask another question here. Yeah. So moving forward, um, how, how does this evolve? How does this integrate in society? How do, um, uh, we have a lot more wearable devices right now. We, we, um, we're, we're measuring ourselves in new and interesting ways. Um, so what does that look like, you know, five years from now and 10 years from now? I think that we've come to see, I mean, we, many people, not just people involved in the quantified self, but many people involved in healthcare and also health in the largest sense, including mental health and how people feel about work and their relationships. Um, we've come to see this domain of problems for which there's no off the shelf answers. Of course, they've always been there, but right. our reliance on expert knowledge has given us in the past a kind of simplistic sense of that problem space. There's questions that have answers and, or answers that we possibly could get. And then there's unanswerable questions that you right. kind of struggle with um, and maybe find an idiosyncratic personal answer, but one that isn't very shareable um, beyond yourself. I think there's a big change when we've started to get some of the instruments, and I also mean instruments in the largest sense, not just physical tools, but ways of thinking that have been associated with scientific reasoning into our own hands. And of course, it's not into every single person's hands. So this is a process of cultural change. But as people get a hold of those tools, problems that seemed unanswerable turn out to have really useful answers. And I think that leads us to kind of be more focused on those kinds of problems and to see, wait, maybe that's most problems. Maybe most questions that we have actually don't have expert answers and require us to, to do some reasoning using our own observations. And some of the areas where I think that's going to be felt really strongly are things like how people take medications, for instance. We know that medications have all kinds of life effects that are not predictable uh, you know, from reading the literature. But how do we get a handle on those life effects? You know, they're commonly called side effects, but maybe we don't even know what's core and what's side anymore when we take medications until right. we do some thinking about it. So I think how people take medications, how people recover from injury, how people um, uh, care for their mental health and their mental well-being, that can be supported by something that looks like science. I call it personal science. You know, so it's, it's not science as a professional vocation, but it's 
making use of and being able to make use of the empirical mindset that underlies science as a vocation and also the instruments. Right. So l- let's stick with that theme a little bit, the distinction between personal science. And then th- th- there are a couple of other terms that you discuss in, in a conceptual framework for personal science, the the, the paper that you co-authored with. Um, Martin time to grow. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And um, let's just talk a little bit more about that. So personal science is distinguished from other kinds of in of one clinical trials, that kind of thing. The number one thing that, well, personal science is in a family of empirical approaches to answering questions, right? So it's based on observations and it's based on recording the observations. So not just observing something, but recording the observations in a structured way that ultimately can be thought about using some of the tools of numerical reasoning we have, right? So, so that's, all empirical processes share that in common, right. right? So they share observation and they share some degree of formality in recording observations. What distinguishes personal science is that the person, the individual, is sort of the locus of control, is the agent in the process. Okay. It's your questions. It's your um, approach so that you, you're not answering questions necessarily about, say, asthma or um, sleep or pain, but about my asthma, right. my sleep, my pain. And the answer you get, whether it's valid or not, is ultimately judged by whether it serves your purposes. And so personal science is personal in that common language sense of like relating to the person and their own private life and concerns. And something interesting that emerges from thinking about personal science that that way and something that we've had a lot of dialogue about with our friends and allies who are professional scientists is, well, wait, what keeps you from just drifting off into like some eccentric approach, right? You're you're saying the locus of control is the person. So is like getting a really great astrological reading, for instance, an example of personal science, you can make observations of the stars and they have meaning for you, right? So, you know, you get into questions of how is personal science legitimate in a social way if everything is focused on the individual person? And I think we do have an answer to that, but it's kind of, I would call it like a grown-up answer. It's not an answer where you can just refer to a set of rules and say that makes it personal science. But personal science has emerged from a community that is doing and feeling the benefits of personal science. And therefore it has a kind of accumulated set of knowledge and traditions, and you can kind of see what lies inside it in a fuzzy way and what lies outside it. And what that community shares is not the specifics of the answers that they derive. Like, okay, if I drink coffee before noon, I don't get an arrhythmia, but if I drink it afternoon, I do get the arrhythmia, right? That's that's very personal and individual. And nobody's saying like, we've discovered the rule for preventing arrhythmias. However, what they do share is the methodology and the instrumentation and kind of the tactics of making knowledge. And that glues it together as a social phenomenon. Right. So part of, part of what I'm thinking about is as we, as we go farther down the path of going into space and creating space hotels, I mean, we we're sending astronauts up to the International Space Station on a regular basis now and 
and plans are in place for us to eventually get to either the moon or to Mars. Um, all of the quantified self-measurements, uh, a lot of them don't work well uh, on those, those planets, but there's probably some comparative basis. I mean, when you change the gravity of, a, uh, of where you're living, uh, that changes a lot of things. But um, it also makes it much more important um, as people are, are going to say, okay, what, what effect does a cup of coffee, coffee have on a person while they're on Mars or while they're on the International Space Station? All of these things, I think, are um, become much, uh, much more important for us to pay attention to um, as we're changing some of these conditions that we're surrounding ourselves in. Well, yeah, so, so I think the point there is that there's a context you can't take for granted when, when you're on Mars or, or the International Space Station or something like that. And this, this set of community practices around understanding the way your body responds to something in an environment where a human body has never been before is, you know, if anything, far more valuable than it would be on Earth, where we have, you know reams of literature where we can kind of understand the relationship between caffeine intake and arrhythmias and things like that. It's, it's much harder to do. A lot of those laws are more tenuous, I think, in those, those more alien contexts. I love that you brought up astronauts and space travel. I think it's very relevant. Um, one of the really influential people who was involved in kind of setting the ethic and the practices of the quantified self community. It's a woman named Anne Wright, and she is a roboticist, and she worked on the Mars rover. And she uses the example of troubleshooting the rover as a metaphor for the quantified self, precisely because there was no user's manual. So you really couldn't just look at a behavior and say, all right, let's, um, let's consult the lookup table and see what went wrong. You know, obviously the creators created a manual. They must know what, what went wrong. It just did not work for that vehicle because it was very complex and it was in a different environment, going into a different environment, but the testing environment modeled, you know, as extreme environment. You had to look at the behavior and make close observations. And then you had to kind of articulate your expectations. Here's what we think it should do in this context. <laughs> and then you had to see what it actually did do. And then you had to think, well, can we develop some ideas about why it did that, right? And so you're troubleshooting, basically. And Anne called quantified self human systems debugging. Oh, that's, that's lovely. And that's good. it's exactly the lack of a context, a known context. And it turns out that actually we're all astronauts. Yeah. In fact, one person who gave a talk, unrelated to Anne completely, completely different meeting, different city, he had had cancer as a boy. And he was in his 50s. And he was having some health effects of the chemotherapy that he underwent as an adolescent. And he was trying to understand the relationship between that experience and what he was, what he was going through now and kind of um, thinking about what to expect in the future and how to handle his symptoms and make some choices. And he was talking to his oncologist, okay, you know, what are the implications of chemotherapy in adolescence for a 50-year-old man? And his oncologist said, and he put up a picture of like, you know, an astronaut, because his oncologist said, you're an astronaut. Like, you're in territory that is not well described. Right. 
in the oncological literature. So we don't know the answer. We have to figure out the answer. And I think a lot of people, especially people in health, they're not really designed mentally to be researchers. They were maybe researchers at one time or they did some research in, in their education, but then they became experts. And what they became was really, really good at kind of pragmatic decision-making in a domain that they knew extremely well. They'd seen a lot. And so they kind of have this feel for the situation based on a deep knowledge. But when you get outside, that knowledge space and you have to do human systems debugging, that becomes very difficult. And I think we all need to learn how to do that. I, I emphatically agree. I, I tend to think that while medicine is remarkable and there's a lot that is fairly standard and we, we understand pretty well, most of us are more unique on an individual basis than is commonly appreciated. And there's, there's actually lots of different ways in which we are not functioning at an optimal level and we could, but we lack those tools and we, we lack that mindset to, to write the things down and to plumb the data and to figure out what it's actually telling us. And that's what excites me about the quantified self. Well, we've learned a lot about how to do that. And some of the lessons were really unexpected. I want to spend some time talking about that, but I wanted to ask you first, was Anne Wright, and I could have this totally wrong, was she the one that had these periodic bouts of really intense lethargy where she, she couldn't work. And so she tracked everything she ate for like three years and took pictures of it all and realized she was having a reaction to nightshade plants like potatoes and tomatoes. And so she cut those out and it was all fine after that. Is, is, is that? Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, lethargy, I'm not sure if that was the only, um, uh, symptom, if you were to describe it as a symptom, but yes, she, and it's a fascinating story just in part because, um, she was recommended um, to follow an Ayurvedic diet. Oh, wow. She doesn't really subscribe to the religious beliefs that are associated with the origins of Ayurvedic medicine, right? But, right. you know, she was really scanning the possibility space right. of, like, what could help me? I'll try anything. And, you know, she found a sympathetic practitioner, and that practitioner recommended an Ayurvedic diet, and she got a lot better. And so this is what you could call a natural experiment, right? Like, you know, this occurs a lot in quantified self stories where somebody moves somewhere and something changes, somebody eats something unusual, um, somebody um, starts a new job. Um, you know, you, you go through these um, shifts in the context of your life and then something changes, but you don't know what it was about that context that was responsible for the change. And that's one of the areas where quantified self can really help. You, it's not good enough really just to say, okay, then I started following an Ayurvedic diet right. and it worked. Right. But why did it work? What was it that worked? Well, I think that's what makes it, the, that, that's what puts the science in personal science is the, the fact that you're looking for causal relationships between these different variables. And maybe the sample size is too small to generalize out to the, the population at large, but it is good enough, I think, to pass the threshold of being science. Well, this is a very controversial statement that you just made, and it has a lot of implications good. that are really interesting to think about. Um, the place that we got to, just to give you the bottom line, in participating in a lot of those debates and discussions is that generalizing 
to more than one person is actually beside the point. That in the end, <laughs> the problem is to find out the answer that's serviceable for you. And when you approach the problem in that way, a lot of things change. For instance, we know that nothing is certain, right? Even really broad consensus kind of beliefs in science are not totally certain and sometimes change, right? right. So actually how much certainty you need is a very consequential decision in trying to solve a problem and, and, and reason. Um, it turns out that how much certainty you need in personal science and the way you think about certainty is very different than the way you think about it in professional science. Because for instance, the consequences of being wrong affect more or less only you right. and the people who are very close to you, right? Right. So the risk is contained in one person. Also, you have the ability to make decisions to limit your risk, right? So you're not, you know, you're not in this unknown situation where you're recommending some intervention. You don't know how people are going to do it, what age they are, right. how much money they have, you know, whether they're employed or unemployed, all these things really affect risk, right? So you can make judgments about your own risk. And all of these things allow personal scientists to operate with a lot more uncertainty right. than you can in sort of biomedicine. And I think that's very interesting. So uh, not, not too long ago, uh, Procter & Gamble's announced that they were working on uh, a 3D printer system for printing hyper-individualized medications for you. So typically doctors can prescribe 200 milligrams or 400 milligrams when the ideal dosage for you at that moment might be 137 milligrams or 368. Um, we haven't been able to work with that level of precision up to this point. Now this announcement from Procter & Gamble said that they were gonna get to the, the, the heart of this and be able to um, dose it directly uh, to what you needed at that moment. And then they could actually combine uh, four or five pills all into one pill that they just printed out with their little machine. Um, I thought that was uh, remarkable. And uh, this, this seems like a natural extension of the things that you're working on. Yes, I, I think that is remarkable. And I guess I would say having gotten deeply into both my own and other people's projects of dosing medications, that that technology presumes a knowledge generating process, which does not yet exist. So they could print the medication, but how do they know what the right dose is? And this turns out to require personal science because you cannot look that up. And <laughs> yeah, right. It just doesn't exist, that knowledge. And in fact, one of, another very influential person in the quantified self movement, Sarah Regari, who is a person with Parkinson's disease, who's very active in um, challenging and developing new ways to think about Parkinson's disease. She did an experiment about dosing the complex medications she takes and one of the things that experiment demonstrated is the level of detailed knowledge that's required is utterly beyond the ken of biomedicine today. And 
we've had many conversations with people who they say, well, sure, but eventually we'll just know everything. We'll have all your data and there'll be an AI and it will output the answer. And, you know, I think the best that could be said about promises like that is that they're made well in advance of the capacity to realize them. <laughs> and we're going to have to make a lot uh, of decisions on the way. No way. Yeah, well, you can't just uh, swallow a handful of sensors and then it automatically knows. <laughs> well, one of the most important things, I mean, this is one of the things we discovered um, kind of at collectively is you have to have your own criteria. Like what, are, what is the outcome measure? Um, what is the phenomenon that you quantify in order to evaluate the um, question that you have. Yeah, you know, that, br that brings up a really good point because we really have no baseline for our own body. Um, right. Yeah, we don't have any, uh, well, this is normal. This is me in a normal state. We, you can we don't do it, but you have to get like blood panels and hormone panels, like pretty regularly. I mean, the only people I think who know that are people who have underlying conditions. I've, I've got a friend who has chronic fatigue as well, and he's just always getting these things. And he's got a rough idea of how much vitamin D he's got on a daily basis and how much protein he needs to consume in order to not fall over at his desk. But most of us just have no idea what's going on in there all the time. Like sometimes I just have a headache. Why? I don't know. Well, somebody like that, if if my experience is borne out, somebody like that, it's, they know how much protein they need in order to not fall over at their desk, in part because they fine-tuned their own reflective awareness of when they feel good and when they feel bad, oh, yeah. right? That's the outcome measure. Like, maybe it's literally not falling over at my desk, or maybe it's something much more sort of intuitive, or maybe it's neither. I don't, you know, but yeah. in almost every case where you see somebody being successful, a lot of the thinking they've done is around this, like, okay, what really matters? What am I trying to measure? What counts in terms of being counted? It actually requires a lot of thought. It's almost like the thing that comes first and the thing that's hidden. Um, how do you know what you care about? Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I, um, I, I want to try to get some purchase on that question by starting from the top and just describing a quantified self experiment. And I understand, you know, N of one, it varies across basically everyone who does this, but you know, just for people who don't know much about it, can, can we describe the basic setup? What's a, a self tracking experiment you see quite a lot? How do people approach that? And what are the results in most cases? All right. Well, so I'll quibble with your question first, and then I'll, I'll, we can talk about it, sure, and I'll try sure. to answer it. You used the word experiment, and experiments are very important in the quantified self, but they're certainly not most projects don't involve formal experiments. And when they do involve formal experiments, it's usually because they've accomplished a lot of other things first. So, if, so an experiment the way I think of it, you know, basically intentionally intervening sure. and then seeing the effect of the intervention on some measure that you have chosen in advance. And then of course there's lots of designs, experimental designs, but, but fundamentally it's the intervention and seeing what happens. That is, requires that you um, have a good idea about what intervention you wanna try <laughs> and that you have a good idea about what you're measuring as its result. 
most quantified self projects begin much earlier than that with observation. So before there's an experiment, there's a sense of like, okay, I'm very curious about something or I have a real need to understand something. What can I observe and learn about it just from watching it for a while? So that's the most common quantified self-experiment is just to say, you know, I'll give you an example, a beautiful talk we saw by Robin Wise who called, Why Do I Cry? And Robin knew that she cried more than most people do, but she wasn't convinced that that was because she was weaker than most people or more vulnerable than most people. So she did a project where she tracked each time she cried, when she started, when she stopped, and what the reasons were. So here you have a project, and there's no experiment, right? But you gather, she gathered data over a long time. I won't go into like what she learned. It's easy to look it up, and it's a, it's a wonderful project. But it's an observational project. And I think a lot of quantified self-projects are observational. I'll give you another example. Uh, Jacob Egg Larson is a professor of engineering at the Danish Technical University. He tracked, well, he wanted to track his headaches because he had headaches. But it turned out that headaches were really quite hard to track because when does it really count as a headache? Yeah. And then like you have one and then when does it count as another one? You know, did you, did, how much time passed? And <laughs> it, it, it turns out there's a significant question about how to make headache tracking work. He ended up tracking um, days without taking aspirin. Oh, that's interesting. So that was a proxy for tracking headaches. And he tracked that over a very long period of time and learned some really fascinating things about his headaches. So those two projects, I think, are very good examples of quantified self-projects that don't involve experiments, but simply involve learning from making observations and recording them and then doing some analysis. Both of them have some analysis in there. So there's actually quite a lot of sciences that are primarily observational rather than experimental. Right. You know, um, and m mostly quantified self is like that. So it seems like most of the projects we've discussed over the course of this conversation have been in the health domain. Is that just because the, the, target audience for lack of a better term for the quantified self movement is a quantitative person who's got a health problem that no one can help them with. And so they just start writing things down in a bid to figure out what's going wrong. Yes. And everybody has health questions. So it turns out that health questions are universal, especially if you define health really broadly, right? If you include fitness and mental health and, you know, what makes us happy in our, you know, home life, um, you know, you have basically a big part of like the pie chart that is human concerns. And we naturally think about health empirically. In fact, when we use the word empirical or empiricism, that word originated in medical practice, in ancient medical practice. So it's natural for us in that domain to kind of want to think empirically. And then the third thing you said is, well, people who are kind of techie in some way, sciencey or techie, that's their toolkit. And, but what I think that does is that just makes it easier for them. 
And so I think the real reason is everybody has health questions and health questions are kind of naturally empirical. <laughs> um, unfortunately, only some people can really make the practice work using current knowledge and instrumentation. So uh, I was, um, I'm a former human factors engineer uh, working at IBM and uh, the tool that we used for these anthropometric tables um, and the military had gone through and they'd done measurements on the human body of men and women. And we had all these volumes and volumes of data of all these 947 individual measurements of all of the people. And uh, I'm not sure how that's, that's evolved since then. Uh, I haven't been looking at it recently. But it seems like there's some sort of an equivalent to that in the quantified self movement, um, uh, measuring people in entirely different ways, knowing what the median is for each of these different measurements. If we have enough uh, enough data to go around, um, it, do you do you foresee a time when we're going to have some like published tables or? Um, uh, this this constitutes a standard for this this type of measurement, or uh, how does how does that evolve in your mind? Yes, two things. I would say to answer that, I do think that standards and kind of standard practices are really important in the quantified self, but they're not at the level of the observations or the observational record, like what is the standard um, human body temperature, for instance, you know, or what is the standard um, activity measure or sleep measure? It's going to be and already is standards for making the measurements. Like how do we get good observations of certain phenomena that are actually tricky to observe? And it's very important to share that and to kind of come to some, um, come to some, let's see if I can find a better way to say it. It's very important to share our methods and our standards for measurement. Because when you have good measures that people are using, then you can have good workflows and analytical processes and things like shared visualizations that all know like, okay, when I talk about um, breath, uh, breathing rate during sleep, I'm not dividing the night between the part before midnight and the part after midnight and getting two different measures for those two different days, right. which actually are one night. Like these are like the real problems that people have when analyzing their data, just cleaning it and getting it to kind of appear the way it's expected to appear. This is a major league problem and it's not going away, but it is, you know, it is very important. Uh, so some of some of the projects that we were uh, tasked with, we were creating workstations as an example, and we had to design them for this range of, of body types, ranging from a fifth percentile female to a 95th percentile male. And so a fifth percentile female is four foot 11 and uh, 90, 95th percentile male is six foot two. And we had to design for that full range of body types. And, and I'm, I'm thinking that somewhere along the line, we might actually have to design for the 
don't know, the, the, the oxygen content that people consume in, in a range like that as well. Um, so I, I can see how this, this uh, evolves over time here. Mm -hmm. Well, I think where the designs will have to go if they want to meet the potential that we have is they will have to go to a place of customization and that that customization will have to be based on an in involvement of the person who is using the equipment um, to determine what is, or at least to help determine what is workable for them. Because as you know, designing systems, there's trade-offs. So it's not just finding an optimum, you know, there's, Oh, right. There's trade-offs. What, what are some of the community standards that have evolved around taking these measurements? Because I'm, I'm actually pretty interested in doing this myself or some version of it. So you mentioned not dividing the night in half because a day rolls over, ticks over, things like that. So, I mean, what are just some kind of, I don't know, eight or ten, however many you can generate off the top of your head, standard pitfalls that you would advise a, a beginner to try to avoid? Yes, I think that's a great question. Many of the pitfalls are related to the fact that making and recording observations using existing instrumentation is very complex, much more complex than it seems. And so I think to avoid pitfalls, it helps to start at the end and to kind of think, well, what do I want to have at the end of this process? And then to work backwards and to say, what's the simplest you know, and least um, prone to failure way that I can get to that potential end. And in doing that, the number one thing that I advise people to do is to really spend some time thinking about this outcome measure, this phenomenon. What is it that they care about? And to be prepared to tinker, to do some experimentation in a sense with the process of recording oh, I think I care about headaches. Let's try recording headaches for a couple of days. You're not even going to use that data necessarily. This right. is a trial period. If I think I care about sleep, let's think about what the simplest way is for me to make a record of how well I'm sleeping. It might just be feeling of restedness upon awakening, right? So we've seen many projects where people think I care about sleep and then they step right into instrumentation. And now they're just in this world of like, devices that measure sleep and then they have weird data outputs or maybe no data output, you know, <laughs> and they're just dead. They've, their project has died like before it's even started. So we're always recommending, okay, back up, think about what you care about, attempt to express that concern empirically, like, okay, what could I, what could I record? What could I observe? Then try it. And then in terms of instrumentation, we actually ended up, Thomas uh, Bloomseth Christensen and Jacob Egg Larson ended up inventing some instrumentation as kind of reference instrumentation, as a way of explaining what kind of instrumentation was useful. And I know you can't see what I'm holding in my hand since, you know, it's a podcast, but I'll describe it to you because I think it's really helpful in terms of answering this question. It's just a little plastic box. Actually, it's 3D printed because it's just reference <laughs> instrumentation. It's a prototype. 
and it has a little blue button on it and I can hold it in my fingers. And when I press the button, it records a timestamp and that's its only function. It doesn't have anything in it. It doesn't have like um, a Bluetooth. It just has like a little USB port. And when you plug it into your computer, it opens as a drive and you see a, ta a data table, which just has a column of the times. And this instrument allows you to accurately quantify anything that you can observe with your consciousness. Obviously, it has to be observable to you. Right. But if you see it or feel it or detect it, your pain or your fatigue or, you know, times you stumble over words or cry or, you know, have an outburst of anger or anything that you kind of know that you're doing, you press the button. And now you have a data record. And the creation of this instrument is really, which is being used now in a number of different contexts, it's open instrumentation. It's just like not very many lines of Python in here. Right. But it, it, it's meant to demonstrate that the key to doing a successful quantified self project is not hooking up elaborate instrumentation that makes complex measures that maybe aren't even that trustworthy because you're not sure if like, the optical sensor was affected by the ambient light in the room or something else that's gonna like ruin your project. The essence of the quantified self project is being able to get a good, well-structured data record that reflects a phenomenon that you really believe you're accurately observing. If you can do that, you can make immense progress in making discoveries about yourself that won't be wasted in kind of fiddling around with broken tools. That, that's that's really remarkable. And I, I'm a data scientist and a machine learning engineer, and, and people just do not understand how hard it is to get uh, clarity on some of these most basic concepts. I mean, like I'm in an agricultural company and, and we, we have interminable debates about what counts as a customer. Right. So is it, is it the account? Is it the people in the account? Is it the actual field? And you, you just wouldn't believe how much goes into trying to figure that out and then what the ramifications are as you begin to build out an analysis of something. I mean, if you're doing farm level versus person level versus, uh, you know, account level, the aggregations are all different. How much they spend is different. The recommendations you make are different. Everything is, it just turns on that. And think about this. You're struggling with that, but you're actually right there where that system is being designed. Right. Imagine if you only had the outputs and then you were just sitting there wondering like, Hmm, you know, I see a rate here. It's showing me my heart rate. It's probably averaging. A heart rate is an average, right? Like yeah. it's a rate per something, you right. know, beats per minute. But is it, is it, how often, like, how often is the sensor? Or what's the sampling rate on what, it? What's the sampling rate, right? Like, so, and then how is it interpreting that? And is it doing some error correction or is it, erasing some measurements because it's like, okay, we're not that accurate when you move. So we're going to use our little actigraph in here and we're just going to like uh, deprecate all the measurements that are taken while the device is moving. All that stuff is going on in this instrumentation, but you have no idea how it's working. Right. And so you're kind of just, uh, these measures are a black box. They work perfectly well if what you care about is getting 10,000 steps a day. There's like no problem with that measurement. But if what you care about is, for instance, are my arrhythmias worse after I'm active for a couple of hours? Now you, you start to have real problems. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Mm. 
So what what is maybe the most interesting project of this kind you've seen a person undertake? There are so many interesting ones. Like, I, I have to say, my experience with doing the community work in Quantified Self, going from being a journalist, working for a magazine, coming up with ideas or kind of receiving ideas from the world and being like, oh, I'm so interested in that. I want to spend a couple months thinking about that. To going to working inside the quantified self for the last 12 years, the, the thing that has made that work for me is that every single day I see something interesting. <laughs> like, there's really no choosing. I mean, I, I guess I'm emotionally compelled by the people I see managing chronic complex conditions, which don't have an answer from biomedicine. And recently, kind of being involved with people who are dealing with the after effects of COVID-19, where there's really not a good diagnostic regime. Certainly there's no therapies that anybody's very happy with. And knowing that this is going to be going on for many years. And, you know, it makes me hopeful that some of what we've done in the last decade will be very relevant and very useful to this next set of people who are dealing with these chronic complex challenges. I, I hope that as well. I've I've read on your blog that people manage to cure Crohn's disease or, or manage it in a far more effective way than is, is normally um, possible, or they just have these debilitating pains that they get under control after decades of, of wrestling with them. It, it can be very inspiring. Yes, I find that very inspiring. And, you know, it's also intellectually really interesting because we live in a world where we have this weird sense in our, in the way we kind of try to create knowledge that no pain, no gain, right? Like the harder you work, the more consequential the discovery, you know? In fact, when you, in the quantified self, it's really that formula doesn't hold, right? Like sometimes you see people struggle for like a decade and then come up with something that really works. And other times you see people try a few things and then, you know, they stumble upon the answer. And I think that's true in science also, right? Like we're talking about this space of making new knowledge. We don't really know exactly how as humans we make new knowledge. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not just an inspiring process, but it's a fascinating process that you can't help but be deeply curious about. Like, where is this knowledge coming from and how is it being made? Somebody should track it. Yeah. <laughs> so the birth so, of an insight. Yeah. So what do you what do you call a person who wants to become a quantified self professional? A quantum. Are, are they quantum self? Well, what would it mean to be a professional? <laughs> um, Probably somebody who helps other people set up the instrumentation, or basically just walk through the concerns you've enumerated already. It's like, don't go for the fanciest heart monitor. What's the simplest? pen and paper and spreadsheet thing we can do are, now to get are some there idea. are there companies hiring quantified self engineers i don't know what what you call yes them. so there should be and we've been involved in doing training and education for allied health professionals so these are it's very interesting because in healthcare you know to be like a surgeon or something you have to really keep your mind focused on this very deep knowledge set and you don't have time to mess around in with like extraneous questions which is why you know you don't see your you don't sit around with your surgeon and talk (laughs) about like you know very often talk about very much um that's kind of in the shadow or the the surroundings of what they're doing for you but your nurses your physical therapists your um mental health professionals 
Those are people who are intimately involved in the daily life and the daily activities of their clients and patients. And that's where we've seen the biggest uptake on the professional side of this knowledge that the community has generated about personal science. And I do think that's where it will kind of take hold professionally before it takes hold in like the MDs. Um, but I don't think there's a name for it. And I think it would be great if there were. Well, very cool. Are, are there any self-tracking projects that you're currently engaged in that you can talk about? Yes, I track a few different things, and but I'm especially curious. I'm using this, right now I'm using the one button tracker to track my arrhythmia. So I have a really common kind of cardiac arrhythmia. Uh, there's a couple of names for it, but PVCs, premature ventricular contractions. And they're really bothersome, but not super dangerous. And I actually did a project where I used the biomedical instrumentation, which is a little uh, uh, electromechanical sensor patch. Um, and I calibrated against my one button tracker to see if my subjective sense of when I was having arrhythmias matched the more objective uh, biomedical uh, measurement. And I did very, very well. So that was reassuring enough that I have now over, that I kept doing it. And I have over a year of data, detailed data about my arrhythmia episodes, along with data about the medications that I've been taking. And so I'm engaged in a long-term process of understanding, okay, what's the minimum dose of medication beyond which I get kind of diminishing returns. Right. And I have already a sense that there is a point like that. It's not a linear thing where like the more medication I get, I take, the better I am. So I'm trying just to kind of get that really, really refined. Well, fantastic. Do you have any last words for people who might be interested in doing something like this for themselves? Well, we have a quantified self forum. It's just forum.quantifiedself.com. It's a very low volume, high quality forum where people who research and self-tracking for many years are kind of lurking on there. So I would say if you're doing a self-tracking project and you've hit a barrier, go to forum.quantifiedself.com, post your question. There's a very good chance you'll get an answer that you can't get anywhere else. Well, fantastic. Thanks so much for having this conversation with us. This is fascinating Yeah, thank stuff. you. This is great. Thank you. Thank you for doing it. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.